0: Pompeii is a byword for destruction and tragedy, but there was much more to it, a good example are the beautiful gardens there. But what were they used for? What was grown? What did they look like? And how comparable are they to the gardens and green spaces of today? Join me and a guest as we discuss the gardens of Pompeii on the Ancient History Hound podcast. Hi. My name is Neil and in this episode I'm delighted to welcome Jessica Venner to guide us through the gardens. Jessica is an AHRC M3C funded doctoral researcher at the University of Birmingham studying classics, ancient history and archaeology. Her thesis is on the subject of subsistence and commercial food cultivation in the urban gardens of Pompeii. Jessica previously undertook an MA in classical civilizations at Birkbeck, part of the University of London and is an editor of the Gardens of the Roman Empire Online Appendices, a follow-up to the print version published in 2018. Recently, Jess was on the team responsible for mapping all gardens in Pompeii. She previously held a professional post at the British School at Rome in London, and currently volunteers at the Chiltern Open Air Museum, the Ashmolean Museum, and Waddesdon Manor in Aylesbury. Jessica, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here talking all things gardens.
0: Excellent. Yeah, it's, I think, particularly valid at this time of year. People, I think, in the last, well, in the recent period, have become a bit more uh, associated with the green spaces. It could be a balcony, it could be a garden, it could be a local park. So I think this has got a particular relevance because people are finding the green spaces around them a bit more. The mm. subject is quite niche, fantastic, very interesting, but niche. How did you? end up getting involved in it
1: it's quite a roundabout story so um I actually began by studying a BA in magazine publishing um and loved it but about two years in I said to my mum I don't really want to do this anymore and she made me finish which I'm grateful for now um but the reason was that I'd been reading a couple of books that really caught my attention um One of them was The First Ladies of Rome by Annalise uh, Friesenbrooke. And then I read The Empress of Rome about Livia by Matthew Dennison. They're such good books to start with anyway. Um, But what really caught my attention was The Women Behind the Men. Mm. And you always hear about the emperors, always, on TV yeah. programs, on podcasts, everything. And it's, of course, very interesting. But these are the stories that we're familiar with. So mm. I was just caught by that. I thought that's amazing. So I um, I went to do an MA at Birkbeck, um, at classical civilization, as you said. Um, and I focused on local produce of cultivation uh, of food at Pompeii in regions one and two. And there are nine regions, so I just focused on two there and just thought it was the best thing ever. It, it I was gonna focus on art and I didn't and I'm so grateful. Um so then I went to do my marketing career and all sorts and ended up at the British school at Rome and then applied for a PhD and they gave me a scholarship. So that was that was great. <laughs> um Brilliant. so yeah and uh AHRC and M3C are just so supportive. Um so yeah. They're brilliant um but more broadly it's an area that's focused on by only a small group of scholars is um roman gardens so hmm. um market gardens in particular are never really looked at so the whole the whole area began began with um an archaeologist called Wilhelmina Jashemsky in about the 1950s and she sat down with her um, she just published a book she sat down with her husband in the garden one day and said what do I do next and he said well you like Roman gardens and you like you like gardens and you like Romans so why don't you do that and she did and she started this whole area that no one had ever really looked at before um, began excavating in Pompeii and found this you know this mass of gardens so market gardens recreational gardens all sorts of vineyards orchards you name it, it was there. And no one had really looked at these open spaces before. And when I started reading about hers, I thought, I mean, this is incredible. We can really learn about the Romans properly through their gardens. I think we all have an attachment, like you say, yeah, the gardens definitely. anyway. So yes, that's that's the in a nutshell, that's how I'm here.
0: What I find particularly interesting about that is it's a relatively new discipline it's something mm. new and and as you said it's something that gives such an insight because you were talking earlier about how we often view Rome through a particular lens for example you're mm. talking about how uh, the women in Rome aren't always accentuated in terms of understood perhaps yeah. researched on their own merits and that's very true I think that that has changed slightly. There have been some more books. I think The First Ladies of Rome, I've read that book as well. Absolutely yes, excellent. A book.
2: Yes. Um, there's
0: a book I think I, re- I recently read um, by uh, Agrippina, Emma Southern. Mm-hmm. And that's excellent as well. Mm-hmm. And it's just this idea of revisiting and trying to find a new way of understanding Rome. And the gardens, It when you, make, when you think about it, it makes absolute sense. Mm-hmm. Why weren't we? We're always crying out for a view in antiquity but ancient Greece or Rome of what the common everyday experience was of people yeah. and I think the gardens are just that so it's in a way quite surprising but I'm, I'm very happy that it has been something that people are looking into and I imagine it will be something that grows no pun intended and becomes really quite a, a weighty subject in itself.
1: Definitely yes and a couple of recent projects hopefully are going to do that um, you mentioned that I'm an editor on the online appendices so it's called the gardens of the roman empire it's a follow-up to the print publication that was produced by joshemsky and scholars and unfortunately she died before it was published but they carried it on and now we're continuing that and you can go online it's in its beta phase at the moment but uh later on you'll be able to see all of the gardens hopefully of the roman empire and just have a little browse around so very very exciting
0: that gives me a bit of a neat segue because I saw that you tweeted that recently and Mm -hmm. I shared that on the ancient Rome subreddit of Reddit and it went down really well. People were really interested in that. And so so there is definitely an appetite and actually to that point, Mm -hmm. if people want to learn about what you're doing and the work that you're doing, Jessica, where can they find that?
1: So um, my Twitter is Miss J L Venner, B E N N E R um and the website that I was just talking about is roman-gardens.github.io um and I print I put all of my most recent publications about Roman Gardens on academia so you could just search my name on academia and yeah I found your name a
0: couple of times when Uh. I was doing some research
1: (laughs) good that's good (laughs) doing something right but yes I'm there and I'm always happy to answer questions so yes
0: I'm going to put these down in the episode notes. In case you weren't aware, I've got a website. It's at ancientblogger.com. And I've been putting episode notes up for each of my podcasts recently to give people who've listened to them a bit more info because you talk about a lot of different things. And that's Mm -hmm. great to talk about, but sometimes you need to see things. And in this particular podcast, I'm going to be putting a lot of images up because there's some fantastic things that we can see, diagrams of the gardens, the art in the gardens, remains everything so i'll be putting those in there and obviously uh, jessica i'll be putting the links that you've mentioned in there as well so if you need to find them you can also find them there
2: great
0: when we talk about gardens you mentioned kitchen gardens and market gardens what were the types of gardens that that were there that you've looked into
1: so I generally like to look at it into two categories which I'm sure I'll go over but it's it's not generally that simple but for understanding them you have the recreational garden and you have the commercial garden. So the recreational garden is the ones that you see in re- you know uh, Renaissance reproduction so you've got your topiary, you've got geometric lines, paths, water fountains, um, you'll have some garden frescoes uh, to make everything look a little bit bigger, trompeau. um always <laughs> <laughs> that a good word. Um, and yeah, so that's the sort of, you know, the beautiful gardens. They were very, very careful about how they designed them to get a certain message across. And then on the commercial side, these are the gardens that were owned by people or rented out, or they would use slaves, unfortunately, to um, cultivate these gardens. They were most often found outside of the town, but in Pompeii we have lots of evidence for them being inside the town as well. Um, and these gardens you'll be you'll be able to identify them by furrows, um, by very neat lines of root cavities that we can excavate in the Vesuvian area now. Um, and of course irrigation methods there's all sorts of things tools but yes there's a very very uh, stark difference but generally okay. they were always very very ordered which we're not surprised about about the Romans, <laughs> i
0: suppose <laughs> so what we're looking at i suppose then is you've got your recreational private and then you've mm-hmm. got ones where you'd actually be growing um, a mm-hmm. surplus of of whatever you're trying to grow exactly you mentioned a percentage of green spaces that is mm-hmm. to say what we've spoken about in pompeii can you remind me what was that percentage again
1: so it's been estimated that there is 33 percent of pompeii was green um yeah it's a lot it is a lot and we're still excavating too so it's going to be more
0: (laughs) yeah that's yeah you've kind of talked yourself into a lot of work there i think
1: yeah exactly can't wait actually i can't wait but yes I'm sure you know, but uh, with Pompeii, we're sort of um, archaeologists. Archaeologists are preserving a lot of Pompeii for future generations, so that we have mm-hmm. the technology to preserve it properly, instead of just, you know, um, excavating as we go to be greedy. So that's yeah. and obviously funding. But yes, there are gardens emerging, which is so so exciting. Um,
0: and there'll be so, more yeah. to be found.
1: Yes, more to be found. Because
0: yes. people don't realise that much of Pompeii still hasn't been excavated.
1: Exactly yes there's still
0: lots and I'm always hoping that somewhere they'll manage to find a box and it's got a whole bunch of plays in there or (laughs) you finally got a section of works I've always wanted you know sort of Claudius's um history of I think it's the Etruscans bit niche Mm -hmm. I think most people have got (laughs) theirs perhaps it's not the most popular (laughs) one to 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 wish for but that sort of thing so hopefully perhaps we'll find something else we'll find more about the gardens so let's start then with the gardens. I think what I'd like to do is, is purely, I've got a balcony, so I don't, I don't get to grow anything. So I think perhaps uh-huh. starting with the sort of private recreational gardens, where were those found exactly?
1: So traditionally, and I'll use Pompeii as an example, you'd find these at the rear of the house. So when they were built, they were built along the same sort of design. You'd have the atrium at the start. So if you're walking through the house you start from the street you can see through you see the atrium you walk through that you might go through the um, masters what i like to think of as the study the tablinum and you walk through that again and you might end up in a peristyle garden and that okay. was as we uh, the ones that we see in films actually so you've got the columns and then you've got the beautiful yeah. design of gardens in the middle um maybe a fountain and then you you could if you were that rich you could have another garden at the back
0: Oh, so it's like an extra garden.
1: Yes, exactly. Or you would just have the garden. So, yeah, the peristyle was like a very wealthy thing to have, but that would be a garden in itself. But the rear garden you'd use for growing, you
0: know. Oh, okay. So you might have, yeah, sort of kitchen garden, because I've seen reference to those where they sort of fall between the two. You're growing produce, but you're not growing produce necessarily to sell. You're growing it purely to supplement what you would cook and what the house would consume.
1: Yes, that's it, yes.
0: Just to just to outline a couple of terms, in case people aren't overly familiar, I'm going to put, um, uh, as I said, I'll be putting up some diagrams on the show notes to show what people, what these are. The atrium was a sort of courtyard within the house. Mm-hmm. Most Roman homes, it's difficult because there are different types of Roman homes. You might have an insulae, and these were very small apartments, um, sort of what we might say, one one room flats. We, we we're assuming that there's no gardens in those gardens. Private gardens would have been for those who could afford a larger house. And a larger Roman house was like, was effectively a walled enclosure with a suite of rooms inside. And the mm-hmm. atrium was a courtyard, it, so you wouldn't have a roof there. You've probably seen it. I dare say, if you've, if you've ever watched HBO's Rome, you would have seen an atrium. They often have sort of little ponds in the middle. They're brilliant ideas, functionally that let, let a lot more light into the place, they could regulate temperature. They look good. And the atrium was that space. The When we talk about peristyles, what we're, we're effectively, as you said, is a sort of covered area, usually colonnades. So you've got columns and these are areas underneath. So these are very, very often would come to where you would find the artwork because you haven't got exposed walls. So just to clarify, you wouldn't have a fence. You're not talking about walking through someone's house and having a fence in their back garden. These were walled areas. And the peristyle again, I'll put an image of one up you'll recognize it immediately. These were covered areas with columns that would I presume afford you a bit more shade and you can kind of lounge around in them and then you had the main open space of the garden um is that generally I'm assuming that's generally what we see at Pompeii
1: yes, that's generally what we see yes uh if anything they would in if you if you were middle Classish, if we can call it Mm. that you would you would want a peristyle and at the very lowest area you would have uh almost always have an atrium or some sort of hall um to receive guests or to show off guests and then you would you would want the peristyle or you'd have a light well which was just generally you know some of them are less than a meter um but it would just let in light down a well into your house and you would you would usually have a painting of a garden on the back to give that impression of i still have a garden even if it is tiny. right you know so you'd have some some element and you mentioned the pool in the middle of the atrium um that's called just for listeners that's the impluvium and sometimes you would have uh flowers planted around that as well okay so, yeah so there were and they they did have flower pots we don't know where they put them (laughs) too much um the greeks love those i think more um but yes so you had the you had the garden throughout really paintings of gardens throughout as well
0: what we're talking about then primarily with these gardens they're a prestige thing yes you're making a statement and you you was you're talking about people going you would show off so these are kind of statement pieces within the house to display wealth and standing
1: yeah that's correct yes um and the fact that I you know we've got the rear garden if you made it there you were definitely a high status important guest
2: right. because oh okay. yeah
1: yeah because the way that the house worked is it sort of works in a hierarchy that reflected Roman hierarchy and social situations so of course you'd be in the atrium and that was considered a more public space and it's not what we would expect today you would not oh. just let someone in your porch today but that's that's the place to be seen. So um, Augustus, for example, used to have his wife Livia and others um, milling around in there, showing off their weaving and what have you, so that he looked that he looked like a traditional household. Yeah. Um, and so you would wait in there for um, your meeting with the with your patron, and people would see that so the more you had, the more important you were. If right. you made it through the uh, the rest of the house, so by stages. Then, what my research has shown is that the garden was definitely a privileged space to end up in, to to be viewed in, um, and they were designed in that way to you limit limit access to them, and therefore wow. you can let people in when you want.
0: So, what you've got then is not only that is the garden being used as a way of showing what your representation of your wealth is; it's also used to kind of basically give your friends or associates a kind of gradation. Um, You mentioned the patron, and I think that's an important point. Mm. Uh, People might not be completely aware of the the patron-client relationship that there was in ancient Rome, and that is Mm -hmm. to say, if you were someone of worth, and if you had a garden with a peristyle, as you've said, you would be of worth. You'd have clients, you'd have people who relied on your support, and obviously you've got loyalty for them. Imagine I'm someone of some importance mm-hmm. and i've been invited and i, I get to go past um, all the other rooms and i'm out in the garden what might i see
1: well we have lots of lots of varied uh, examples but i will um take you to the house of the Aphebe.
2: um
1: yes. so the house of the ephib was a fairly wealthy property it was quite a long property it had a couple of atriums so that's important in itself why would they have two atriums to limit who's coming in and to show off certain parts of the house and so on and so forth. Um they also had a garden and at the in this garden it was sort of split into two. So on one side you had a triclinium which is a three-couched dining area and again this is something we're very familiar with from media. So you would be uh you would see that and it was it was huge. Um that was surrounded by frescoes. They had a big statue there of of a god um, they had um, little items around I think they had flowing water even in this mm. one um, so yes you'd be asked to sit down on that co- again according to your status depending on what what couch you were put on and sometimes this put some people out of <laughs> the nose out of joint a little bit right. um, yeah and then uh, on the left hand side of the garden you had an area that was sort of it was split by a path a little trellis fence with little herms on the top little little heads um and again there were more garden frescoes found there which were very beautiful you you could walk down the path and you could go and sit on the uh, semicircular bench there there was a little marble table and uh what jschemski found was little were little furrows in a little area um that were reminiscent of a vegetable garden So this garden has everything, really. Um, It has the showing off bit, you know, the bit where you entertain, and that was looking out. uh, If you sat in the dining room that was inside, you would be looking out onto this beautiful garden. They had a big open area to look at. It's a bit like we have today, an open plan. It was kind of like that, actually. Um, And then you've got your little rustic garden. And my own research has shown that actually this could have supported at least some of the household, perhaps the slaves. Ah. But I think more so because of where it's positioned in relation to the triclinium where you would dine. They wanted you to see that. They wanted you to see that they were being traditional. A bit like we do with, you know, you go and give someone your courgettes from your allotment today. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Okay. Go local.
1: Yes. (laughs) It was a bit like that.
0: Locally sourced.
1: Yeah. I think they were trying to cling on to the there was this big, you know, don't be too luxurious thing going on but you have to compete at the same time it was quite a fine line to walk um but I think this is one of those examples so yes we got that but um in terms of what they grew I mean it was so so diverse there were so many trees that we found in Pompeii and um we know that there was an apple cellar Uh, who used to go around in the graffiti well the thing that we found saying uh, apples apples you know buy my apples so we know that there are apples nearby (laughs) uh, that's, that's a good evidence um we also have pine trees loads of those cherries almonds oh god uh what else do we have and then but well there's loads of those but then we've got blackberries
2: Mm.
1: uh obviously we have grapes which I'm sure we'll go into yeah they loved a fig they loved an olive obviously as you'd imagine but they also had lots of herbs so you have um coriander oregano rosemary mint um these are harder to find we can't find Mm. those in the archaeological record because they would have just been obliterated by the eruption yeah But there are other things. So the root cavities of the trees, for example, we can uh, we can look at those and and identify what was growing there Um, with with relative accuracy. I mean, sometimes you're not so sure. But also the frescoes in the gardens and sometimes in the houses are actually really helpful. So in the house of the fruit orchard, we have this little room, and it is so so beautiful. If you ever go to Pompeii, anyone that's listening, do go to this house. It has this amazing fresco of trees and they are just fruit trees and one of them is a citrus so it makes you think whether we had this is a big debate anyway among oh, yes. archaeologists in Pompeii <laughs> but whether they had citrus or not some are very adamant that they didn't and some think they did <laughs> so I think it's relatively possible to bring one over in a pot and and give that a go yeah um, and I, yeah I yeah, think I so it was it was important to Jewish communities as well and oh, there are okay. some links there in Pompeii but it's all very yeah <laughs> nobody really knows <laughs> but does that does that give an idea
0: that, that's absolutely brilliant you've hit a couple uh, upon a couple points there I just want to start with the the house of the Ephib. you have the tricholinium which is the yeah. couches if you were looking above this it would look like a horseshoe so that's yes. the way that the couches were laid out and I when I had a look around and obviously did a bit of reading myself on these couches on the base, I think that's where we find the frescoes of the Nile. Yes. And, yeah. and there's some scenes there of Egypt, of the Nile, some ones with hippopotamuses or hippopotami, <laughs> uh, lots of, lots of them anyway, and yeah. all sorts. This was quite a, so you can imagine if you're going to eat and you get sat down there, You've got this kind of exotic scene. Now, Egypt was well known to the Romans. It was an incredibly important province, but still the idea of the exotic, and you could have that in your garden. And then you've also just mentioned about the the scenes of the orchard. And that's a kind of realism that you have as well. So you have this weird contrast. And I was going through some of the frescoes, and I found it fascinating that you could really use frescoes in a garden to either suggest normalism as it were a kind of reality of false reality or you could go way over and have these really quite fanciful exaggerated myths um the one that you're speaking about with the fruit trees just to um to to pile on on the intense lemon debate which you know if you didn't know it existed it exists there is the debate is whether or not Ro- uh, Pompeii had lemons the earliest I think the earliest defined absolute concrete they had lemons in Rome is a pip that was found in the Forum, in the, the what was known as the Maimatime prison, and that's been dated to the 1st century AD or CE. The difficulty is, of course, everything before that. There is pollen that's been found in a core sample taken from a lagoon, an ancient lagoon near Kumai, and that has citrus pollen in there. There's also citrus seeds that have been found in Pompeii, one of the problems is that seeds and pollen don't always indicate what it was. And you've got different types of citrus. The, the What I've heard or what I've read is suggested that there was definitely citrons, which are kind of, I've never seen one before. And these are big uber lemons. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've also got the lemon as well. So we don't really know whether Rome or, or rather Pompeii at that point in time and leading up to the, the final days of it had lemons aplenty. When you cite the fact they had frescoes, Sometimes that means they were aiming for realism. Sometimes it could be well here 's an exotic thing we don 't know if they were necessarily viewed as a kind of exotic again, like as you said with the uh, prestige kind of if you can have a prestige fruit, perhaps they were a prestige <laughs> fruit and i'm going to put some of the papers that I found where someone 's done incredible work using carbonized lemon seeds or what they think might be lemon seeds and they've kind of gone into huge amounts of detail so mm-hmm. it just it goes to show just I, I found it really interesting I was going to say it's it's it was a rabbit <laughs> hole I really quite enjoyed as like, I really got into it oh yes it. Like, it,
1: <laughs> this is the yeah. thing with gardens and and yeah. it's because it's fairly new in terms of the interpretation I mean Jasemski started in the 50s and there have been so many good papers and books mm. on them but yes they these sort of things, you can never be quite sure. And I think that's, kind of, you know, kind of the appeal. Yeah, yeah. So I mentioned the root cavities of mm. trees. So, for example, the um, there is a root cavity that Droszemski found. And she thought that it was a citrus tree. And she used to... Uh, talk to the locals a lot about what they do today and it's remarkable how similar it is it is really remarkable and yes that citron they still grow there (laughs) and they're bizarre you open them up and it's not what you expect it's all pith it's really odd but anyway um yeah it's very likely that they were growing them I don't see why not whether they were able to acclimatize them I don't know Hmm. they they struggled with that with dates um so perhaps they perhaps they couldn't there were certain things they couldn't grow and <laughs> much to their distaste but yes in, importing they would
0: have yeah in yeah. one of the ha- in one of the houses they ha- they found I'm trying to think which one it was they found it might be Julius Polybius perhaps or yeah. was it Vetti it was they, there, it, yeah. it, it, one of the one of those houses they found uh, fragments of terracotta in amongst the roots mm-hmm. uh, of, of some of the trees and they think that these were originally started in pots and then planted. So that kind of gives, obviously, as you were saying. So these were sort of, I imagine, what people do today when they garden. But just just to stay with the private gardens, You've mentioned the kind of privet hedges, that kind of thing. So you'd, you'd look, if you looked out, you'd have this rustic perhaps area because Rome, Romans were, if nothing, Love the idea that they all came, they all, oh yes, I, I wish I could go back to being a farmer again like my great- <laughs> Exactly, you
2: know. yeah. They
0: loved that. They were nothing like that. And there's a particularly catty thing that I'll come to later. Unsurprisingly, it's Cicero. If you went into these gardens, you would see order, generally speaking, the hedges, the box hedges, like you say, I presume then you'd have grass, you'd have the statues.
2: Mm.
0: Am I missing anything else? I'm trying to think of anything. Uh, again, it's difficult to standardise because, as you've said, there are yeah. so many different gardens. They all do yeah. things slightly differently.
1: It's it's really helpful, like you're saying here, um, to compare the literary sources with what we actually have in the archaeology so there's this lovely passage from Cicero who's referencing his uh, friend's garden it might be his brother and he's saying about the how talented the gardener is he's such a talented gardener and he's even got ivy going up the statues to make them look like they're alive like they're coming out oh, wow. of the ivy um so they were really really skilled I mean the topiary uh the younger says about how he's got his name written out in topiary really <laughs> yeah oh, this is no, that... much longer after they're moaning about it and he's already doing it so <laughs> you know it's quite quite something but they had gardeners that they put a great uh great trust in to mm. to sort their gardens out and to show off and it was really really important that you got it right you know the areas of shade had to be correct so that you could walk and And actually, this is something to comment on. Um, Walking in the garden was so, so important. You would simply walk up and down, walk up and down. A bit like you see in a Jane Austen film. You just walk, you, you would meant to be seen walking and in the public gardens of rome that was the idea you'd walk and you'd wait for an invitation to dinner it was sort of that right. uh, or you'd meet some friends or whatever um but they were designed to have straight lines so that you could go up and down up and down around the exotic plants that you've planted and show off those and yeah so there was all sorts going on there
0: we mentioned some of the frescoes, and just want to talk about some of those because I found them, again, I'll put images of these up. There's one in, or well, there's two in the House of the Golden Bracelet. And if you ever wonder why houses are called what they're called, it's very often it's because they're identified through what was found there. If you're a bird lover, you've got to look at these images. There's two frescoes. One of the fresco has a sort of bird bath with a wood pigeon on it. And another one has just all sorts of birds in a sort of similar environment it's all set against bushes. So it's trying to look real and you've just got these birds that are, that have been painted on it and they're absolutely beautiful and they're so detailed. They can be identified. I got a list. Someone actually went through, I I put it on my Instagram, which is um, ancient blogger unsurprisingly, and someone has actually gone through and identified each bird. Mm -hmm. So the ones on the North wall, you've got swallows, magpies, thrush, golden Oriole and a turtle dove on the East wall. You've got a, a rock dove, flycatcher, chaffinch, thrush, quail, and a purple gallinute, which is walking along the bottom. That's what that is. I'd, I'd never heard of one of those before. Okay. And apparently that was seen as quite an exotic bird. So even when they're trying to do realism, there's that sense of, yeah, but in my garden, when I do realism, it's it's got that sort of waft of the exotic about it. But they're really beautiful. So you've got those kind of frescoes. Then you've got the fresco in the House of Venus. In the House of Venus, you've just got this massive Venus lying sideways on a on a shell. Mm-hmm. You think of uh, Botticelli's Birth of Venus. Well, this is kind of that, but not obviously as good, and lying sideways. She doesn't look particularly happy. I think um, uh, Professor Mary Beard has written a book on Pompeii. If you want a book on Pompeii, read that book. It's fantastic. And she makes the comment that Venus really doesn't look at all bothered or particularly nonplussed about it. It's not until you see how big... That is, it dominates the the wall that it's set against, and you would have seen this from far out. Yeah. There are these absolutely fantastic frescoes. So where you were talking about you had these the gardeners who were considered experts, you can imagine they would have had demand for artists, the latest artists who can come yeah and put a fresco the most up-to-date fashionable fresco perhaps they you know did right we're gonna get rid of that one we want a new one up there for the latest trend because now we want scenes from here or this kind yeah. of myth is is really uh doing the rounds at the moment so again a lot of these are kind of concurrent could be linked into modern attitudes nothing seems to have been permanent as it were it seems that people were able to kind of shift things around and change things with new fashions which is a very human thing mm-hmm.
1: Definitely. And um, there are actually four styles that have been recognized in Pompeii and we use Pompeii as the start, but four styles of art and they go from the very, very basic to the absolutely outrageous. So, yeah, some of those that you've described are all uh, parts of those, that development. And a lot of these frescoes also were, it's worth remembering, there was an earthquake in AD 62 that hit the town of Pompeii and the surrounding area. A lot of the town was destroyed. I mean a lot of it and um, I mean in the house of uh, Caecilius jucundus which is one of the ones you learn when you're doing Latin at school he's that guy in the book um, he has he even has a picture of these statues falling off of their statues because they're wobbling in the earthquake (laughs) so (laughs) that was the earthquake he was referencing um but after that a lot of the town was rejuvenated and they were trying to rebuild and they would have been putting up new paintings and we even have you know the remains of lime in certain houses where they're Mm. about to start doing the frescoes which is part of the process of it you need lime to do that um and yeah so yes they were changing all the time and you had to keep up You had to keep up. It was keeping up
0: with (laughs) James's. Sometimes these frescoes were really quite very, very clever in what they were trying to achieve. Uh, The house of the Vetti, you you might well recognise it if you've ever seen an image of Priapus. And Priapus Mm. is. I won't say anything more other than he's he seems happy with his his lot, (laughs) and he's on the outside of the house. Yeah. And the fresco is of him by the front door, and again. The point you made earlier about if you stood by the front door, you could see all the way through the house. And Mary Beard, again, Professor Mary Beard, makes this point. And in the garden, you would have seen a, a statue of Priapus. So you would have seen the fresco in the front, right where you're waiting to go in. And then you had a distinct sight line to see that as a represented in as a statue in mm-hmm. the garden. So again, it's kind of these, this match-up. It's very, very... I wouldn't yeah. say subtle, but it's just very very clever it it sort of it speaks to a lot of what we would consider like a modern value of all matching and making sure things line up uh, It just says yeah. a lot about how people how people thought about it. Probably my favorite garden though, the private gardens is the uh, house of Octavius Quartio. and that's because in the garden there is this i think it's been measured around fifty meter channel that runs the entire length it, it kind of butts cuts the garden in two. And this has trellises over it. It has arches. It has little bridges. It yeah. fed fountains. Apparently, it would have had fish in it, and everything set alongside of it matches and mirrors. So it's it's you know it, it's the dominant feature, and the way that you got water in there apparently have been it was a feat of engineering in itself. But it's just absolutely fascinating. And I put a picture again. I found a couple of really good pictures. Someone even did it in Minecraft. I found someone who had done their own version of it in oh Minecraft, <laughs> which is just fantastic. But I really like that. And this is, funny enough, this became or seems to have become a trend. And I mentioned earlier the kind of catty comment that, of, of Cicero. Some of these became nicknamed as Niles, uh, that if you had a Nile in your garden, the idea that you had a, a canal, as it were, because you could be that ostentatious and afford all of that. And Cicero, on the Lords, in Book 2, he's talking with Atticus, And Atticus actually says they're walking around and, of course, they're out in the natural landscape and they sort of sat there. And Atticus is saying, oh, I feel sorry for all those people who've got expensive marble and all of these, you know, fancy. This is really what you want. Oh, and they have those silly little canals that they call Euripius. Euripius, yes. Yeah, Yeah. Euripius uh, or their Niles and the nickname, all of that. And it's just this real kind of snobbiness that when The Joneses have competed with you, you need to kind of change the rules of the game. So now, oh, yeah, you know, I can't believe they would do that because you've, you know, they've kind of outdone you. So what you try and do is then go back to basics. No, no, no. What you need is a basic garden. As you were saying, you know, here's my rustic garden. Here's the, here's, yeah, all all that kind of stuff. And it is, it just kind of speaks volumes of that, that Jones's attitude uh, about that because it seemed quite popular. But Cicero, I think in a later one, when he was saying he was talking to his brother Quintus and he was writing letters, he actually starts talking about how he wants one of these uh, canals or water channels in one of his gardens. Um, so he's, you know, not above himself, you know, wanting what everyone else wants to do. So, again, it's kind of an insight into the way people yeah. are- <laughs> I
1: definitely yeah it was all all about that and especially at pompeii you didn't have uh, a great amount of water and like the earthquake mm. i mentioned recently um the uh earthquake cut off some water supply which right. wasn't fantastic in pompeii anyway so if you were someone like octavius courtier you were especially important and they had lots of water fountains so you could mm. go and collect some water and you could bring it back to your house i mean there was some uh tubes put in the walls so that you could feed it through so you didn't have to walk all the way around with your you know your tank of water your bucket of water you would go (laughs) and put it through the (laughs) through the channel and it would feed around the channel they were very very particular about water so Mm. yeah if you had it to display that was particularly important you had running water and the fountains you could even turn off so uh actually i think it's in the house of the afib you could you could uh direct where the water was going by turning the tap so it would go to the left and you'd you'd irrigate the rest left and then you go to the right it was incredible they were very very particular about it all they've Um, got
0: to have pranked someone on that
1: Oh, surely! Oh, you, 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 uh,
0: I refuse to believe. We anyway, we've got so no yeah. evidence for it, but I refuse to believe that <laughs> at some point someone didn't go. Oh, yeah! Can you have a look? Look down the. Uh, look down this tube here. Look
1: Definitely. down it. Is there anything
0: blocking it? Turn on the tap. There we go.
1: It's so funny. And you also mentioned the fish. So yes, yes in that Europus, they had um, little hidey holes for the fish so that they didn't get too hot in the sun.
0: Oh, brilliant! So there was because <laughs> I know at this point let's say, first century. AD CE, yep. it's you start to get the idea of people particularly in campania in Kuma and kumai and places like that where people have their own sort of i would say fish pools but they start to become a thing a real thing oh um, yeah. particularly yeah. when they want to grow eels and not grow them but you know farm That's eels it. and do things like that that the Definitely. fish become but i loved i didn't know that so they even had they kind of everything's got so much detail and attention to it because you obviously you don't want dead fish floating around your fountains or floating down there so you've got somewhere and i presume as well that would stop them being predated because you can imagine the people i know people have problems today with if a a heron or or something finds your pond then adios but here they've got somewhere they can actually like you say hide away
1: yeah. yeah. And the trellis right. as well would have shaded it. So yes, they'd have had vine they had vines going over. We found root cavities near the columns and what have you right. in that garden. And you're right, it was all very geometric, very, very organized. So you'd walk around, like I was saying, you'd walk up uh along that channel and round and then back again. Um and there were statues along the way to view. So yeah.
0: You just mentioned and it's something I'd never even thought of the shading in the right places, even, yeah. con- even controlling the temperature oh, of, really of what's people's experience as they walk around. Visually, you're looking at different things. You're perhaps hearing different things because the fountains are on and then you're cooling down at the right point if you're on a, a long walk. These private gardens were really about putting yourself on the map socially, explaining to people where they were in a Definitely. type of hierarchy yeah. and, and, and keeping up with the Joneses on a, on a mm-hmm. massive scale.
1: And I, I'm convinced that they, the owner of the Octavius Courteo House, there's a there's a gate at the back or a door at the back of the garden. So I'm convinced that he used to let people in because you can't get up onto the into the house, which is on a high level, mm. um, unless you go a very specific way. And we know that slaves used to stand in the way of places you weren't allowed. So I'm convinced that they didn't <laughs> they didn't get want you to get up there. I feel like sometimes he might have opened it up. Um, right. Just by the way that that, and the door is positioned right near the amphitheatre. It's a very, very public way. Oh,
0: okay. Or at
1: least you would be able to see through into his garden at the very, right. very least. But it was definitely a statement. Yeah.
0: I think we've covered private gardens pretty well. Yes. As I said, <laughs> it's probably quite good though to start looking at the other types of garden, the mm-hmm. ones where, the what we what i I've, I've read termed as the market garden and a market mm-hmm. garden is where you're creating a surplus of something growing something i suppose the first question is these were obviously different they could exist in some way sort of as an overlap within private gardens but where were these found in terms of you know their location within pompeii they...
1: so um the majority of these market gardens were found in regions one and two so if you were looking at a map of Pompeii you've got the amphitheater in the bottom right hand corner and region one and two surrounds that amphitheater. Um, There are so so many here and this is where I focus my research because of course they're all bundled there. It was sort of seen as a I think a periphery area of the city so when, when the Pompeii was built it was more towards the left-hand corner, if you could call it that. It started there, the old stat, which okay. is the old town, and it built out from there. And I think this is sort of considered the agricultural area almost. I mean, if you were walking through it, it would be very, very green. There would be trees everywhere, vineyards right. all sorts. So, yes, you've got those, um, but they were at the back of houses, and often they're okay. called the house of the ship Europa, but yeah. it doesn't mean that that was a house. So these names can be a little bit misleading sometimes.
0: Right, okay.
1: Yeah. So what it means is that with the House of the Ship Europa, for example, um, it, it was a house. It was a wealthy house with an atrium um, and it was combined with another one next door. And then they built the garden at the back. And I right. think they dem- they must have demolished uh, quite a few buildings in this block, a bit like in a New York block, you know, an insula. Mm. And you've got the yeah a huge huge garden I think it's it's just about 1800 square meters a massive massive garden and it's across a couple of terraces as well so it's on a little southern slope which Columella said you should put your gardens on a a southern slope you'll get the best out of it um so yes so yeah so you've got those huge ones and that was a vineyard and orchard and it had two vegetable
0: plots okay and then you've got on, sorry what know. was what was when you say the an orchard so they had it wasn't just used for one one particular produce you had everything there
1: yeah so you could just have a vineyard but it was very very uncommon and if you go to the area today that's uncommon as well you'll often have uh something else going on there right so um they would they could have trained up trees though you'd have to have a lot of trees and i think considering it's in a town that probably wouldn't work so um we we think that they were trellised so they were staked the yeah. the vines and they would have been in an, a sort of uh, square sort of shape a bit like a trellis you'd have today actually and that would keep the ground shaded underneath and keep the moisture there um, but you could have trees so they're often around the edges of the garden and they would be fruit and nut trees most often and then to introduce nitrogen into the soil, which gives you a better grape, they would put beans in between the vines.
0: I didn't know that. I knew about the trees because there's some discussion about you could grow vines a number of different ways and some you could go from not having anything and just having them on the ground through to using trees specifically and then mixing it up. And from what you're saying, it was a bit of a, a mixture. But I didn't know about... Uh, the beans that's really interesting because that's obviously (laughs) again they've obviously got quite a developed concept of what you should be growing and how you you get the best produce from it
1: absolutely and they knew about their their grapes as well Uh, it's it's not really that different today so um columella and pliny talk about the Horconian, or we think it's maybe holoconian after a Pompeian family grape um which was pliny said was very strong and it was productive productive only in fertile soil which Pompeii of course being next to a a volcano was extremely fertile um so yes they they had a very good idea of how to rotate crops um in farms and all these different techniques and and I mean some of them have been tested and some of them we're not we're not quite sure on and they get very very detailed um one of the very luxurious uh figures at the time was pliny said oh he he, uh waters his lettuce with honey (laughs) to make it taste nicer (laughs) yeah Um, yeah. (laughs) so they had all these different and there's another one that's like what pliny advises when a dog's weed on your vegetables (laughs) so you know you've got all these random things that they knew about and they had all of these different ideas but yeah a lot of it is still used today so you know, like I said about introducing the nitrogen, they clearly mm. knew how to do that. We have found beans between vine cavities, um, and yeah. So, yeah, very. There are good
0: lots stuff. of uh, there are lots and lots of uh, vines and grape varieties. If you go to Pliny, he talks about this yeah. is so many. And what's interesting, I did have one question that was asked:
2: mm.
0: How have species changed? And obviously species in the modern era have changed a lot because you've got crossbreeding, you've got selective crossbreeding, you've got all sorts of agricultural practices going on. But even back in the time of ancient Rome, there were, as you said, there's probably crossbreeding going on or or similar things. They had an understanding of agriculture, but some things had stopped. I think Pliny talks about a couple of grape species that existed in the time of Cato, Cato the elder. He was writing in the mid second century BCE and, He says there's they just don't exist anymore, so there's possible through the period of ancient Rome, uh, species or variety, should I say, of grapes and and the like that just stopped, they weren't Mm -hmm. grown anymore. Uh, so it's not this one consistent. There were, I I found reference to a vineyard that was planted in the old cattle market,
1: yes, the Foro Boreo.
0: Yeah, that's really that was really quite that's quite massive i i had um there was so they said for 58 trees and I, I found this and correct me if i'm wrong so like 58 trees that were located there and i think they used them as well as trellises as you've spoken about they had right. winemaking yeah. facilities there and it was they also had a, a nearby tavern and this was next to the amphitheater so mm-hmm. if you're thinking about growing something and then being able to sell it you've got everything in one one place it's very self-sufficient yeah.
1: Yes, they had 1,200 vines there oh, yeah. or, uh, or up to 4,000 or something mad. It, it's literally insane. I was having a look yesterday at how much they could have produced and uh, Juszemski says about, two, she. so she sees 4,000 vines. She works out from what Columella advises about how much you could get out per vine. Um, and she thinks about 2,400 gallons of wine. Wow. I think that's an easy estimate maybe I so think you
0: think it could be more than that then
1: potentially it depends how intensively they were growing and it seems quite intensive when you look at mm. a full plan of this yeah of where the cavities were found um but yeah like we say they're very very skilled and you could get a, a few writers say you know you can get a few harvests out of the mm. land around Campania per year yeah. So who knows? I mean, we'd need to ask. <laughs> we'd need to ask a local vineyard, I yeah. guess. Um, <laughs> but yeah, ones that I've visited have looked about the same sort of size, and they produce a massive amount. A massive amount. So you've got the. You mentioned the wine producing. So you've got the dolia, which are huge um, terracotta jars, almost that you would put in the ground, and then you would, you know, you would grind down your grapes, and then you would put them in there, and then you would harvest them. Uh, you would get it out around, you know, autumn. you would put them mm. in there. Um, the harvest was around autumn, so uh, and that's another reason we don't think that the eruption was in August
0: anymore. Yeah, I was, I was gonna, I was <laughs> yeah. gonna come to that uh, <laughs> yeah. or, or mention it. We we've not spoken too much, obviously, about the other the other part of Pompeii, which everyone always talks about. And just to, as a, a cheap and uh, I feel I feel bad already, but what what the hell? Plug. I did a podcast episode on it where we go through the day the events leading up to it and also the prehistory a bit of pompeii but yeah there is always that has to come with a caveat that we have this traditional date of the 24th of august Mm. ad 79 as the eruption of pompeii one of the there's several arguments that say that that actually isn't correct one of them is that there's been some graffiti found that actually refers to a later date in the in the year other and and perhaps more comprehensive is the agricultural evidence and these are things that have been found would you be able to just describe that in a bit more detail than I did
1: yeah so um there I mean I've always I was always suspicious because there are things mm. like cherries that you wouldn't be there are certain things and I mean you could they might be importing them they might be preserving yeah. them it just didn't sit well with me <laughs> yeah and the lids lids were off of the dollier and things that so they were clearly they were clearly doing something so you know um sorry they were on the dollier so they were ready to go so clearly they'd already harvested um right. yeah and they uh, they wouldn't leave the wine long you know you wouldn't be the ones out of the town would be doing the fancy ones the fancy wines the falernian <laughs> you, oh yeah <laughs> that you pay a lot for um but yeah uh so those were the little clues i mean we've got a ton of literally a ton of pomegranates in a plontus, and there's just mm. this i've seen the pile it's incredible of just pomegranates and that's another little clue there um mm. So, yeah, it's hard to know, though, because, of course, this was 2000 years ago. So how can we know exactly when they harvested? But it it can't have changed a bit like you were saying about the species. It can't have changed that much in 2000 years. So we do have a good idea. Um, Yes. And often the locals say we've done it that way always.
0: (laughs) It's pretty tough. It's pretty tough because if you say the eruption didn't happen on that day, Mm. then, of course, the onus is on to say it happened at this day until we have something more comprehensive. The current day is as stands, but it does come with that caveat. And we've done so. We, we've looked at grapes quite a bit, and as you can imagine, they mm. were pretty popular. I don't think <laughs> that's much of a surprise. I just want to quickly. I had I tried this out on a friend at work, and I said to them, "What foodstuffs do you think weren't being grown in Pompeii?" Right. And of course, you come out. We came up with some some obvious ones. I think potato uh, that yep. wasn't grown in Pompeii. You wouldn't have had chilies, I don't think. What were the other peppers? Uh, tomatoes now tomatoes was the one that stumped everyone tomatoes were not grown in pompeii because they were one of those foodstuffs that was only came over um to europe i think with the from the new americas as it were or Mm -hmm. uh, south america or i think it's south america perhaps it's north america some anyway it didn't come from the european content nor did they have access to it you can correct me i'm sure you will on this one the orange yeah no we've not got
1: any no oranges.
0: oranges. <laughs> so you think again of things you think of when yeah, what yeah. people were growing. When we talk about orchards, because you, you've mentioned orchards a few mm. times, straight away in my head orange trees, lemon trees. Well, we're not yeah. going to do the lemon thing again, but perhaps here <laughs> yeah, you might have orange trees. But no, and again, no, no tomatoes. There was quite a lot of stuff they weren't growing. Um, you've mentioned uh, olives. I, I think. What other sort of main foodstuffs have you found to be in those gardens or in the market gardens?
1: Mm -hmm. so a real mix so it's all fruit and nut trees so um like i mentioned they loved the fig yeah 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 um and that was they were everywhere um and yes obviously we've been over the grapes and all this but they also had uh lots of apple trees so either sorb apple or um apple (laughs) so there were different varieties (laughs) um obviously not a tree but they had strawberry wild yeah. strawberry which Pliny wasn't a fan of
0: I didn't think um, they'd have them for some reason
1: no and they're not what we would look at now I mean they, they're more like wild and again they've been depicted on frescoes in the town but they mm. he calls them Arbutus Tsunedo because you don't eat it once <laughs> I won't go into that further but mm. yeah it's not good for your tummy basically
2: right, okay. uh, he
1: didn't like those um and uh, we've got lots of other berries, so like blackberry, mulberry, hackberry. I think these would have been around the orchards as well. Um, mm. But in terms of nuts, so they loved a nut and they were obviously really good for you. Like they would fill up your diet quite a bit, Yeah. Um, fill you up rather. Um, so we had uh, chestnuts and hazelnuts, walnuts. Um, oh, God, loads. Pine nuts. Yeah, those were the main, main ones. Mm. Um, oh, we had pear. As well. I yeah I was going to say yes.
0: pears uh, again when you go through some of Pliny's stuff in natural history it, the, the chapter will be of the 49 species oh, of pear God. and what to do with them <laughs> and, and you're thinking nah he's not going to and he does and you yes, could just he see does. he lists oh, all yeah. of them and talks about them and gives right. them nicknames I think was it <laughs> the Persian apple he nicknames one of them yeah, um, yeah is the Persian yeah. apple and that's not a that's not a slight by the way because sometimes when people give names to things that are aren't from their own area it's done in a kind of pejorative way this was because that's what they that they thought it may have come from it may have been a Persian thing yeah there's <laughs> lots of lots of pears uh, I there did are. See
1: yeah and, and and peaches as well so, peaches okay yeah I think they were fairly fairly recent um so he talks about one being so so much money I mean like such a lot of money for just one peach but I think they were being grown as well but I can't off okay. the top of my head think of any peach uh pits I think there are right. but I, I don't know but the others are uh, what I mean is they're rare you, you mm. would. I think mostly they'd be imported. Mm. Um, but yeah, so we've, we've got pretty much everything that we have today.
0: <laughs> so, I've seen, I've read that we had chickpeas, which yep. uh, chickpeas is always a funny one because that's what Cicero translates as. <laughs> yes, nickname. they're very,
1: very uh, important. They're very important than lentils as well. Yeah. So, of course, if you were poor, you'd be eating porridge pretty mm. much, a porridge gruel. gruel. Um, you might add a bit of sausage to it a bit of honey maybe mm. um and then you'd go up from there you'd have chickpeas and lentils to fill you yep. up things that are cheap and these like i said these sort of things and beans were grown between stuff so the right. inter- okay. cultivation of of different varieties to make the most out of your garden and the most profit possible basically. i wonder if that's
0: done today i again if you're listening mm. to this and you have a garden you've got so you're growing different things do you i'd be interested to hear do you mix things in I don't know if that's, I presume it must be a practice that's done today, but it's not, again, yeah. I don't have a garden to grow things in, <laughs> but I just wonder no. if that's what, what people will do now. I, presume I think they do presume in the area. They mm. do in
1: the area today in Pompeii still. So it makes sense because you've got no, not much room to work with. So
0: Yeah, yeah. we well, yeah, And also, like you say, if it's helping, this is a kind of symbiotic relationship, it's good for the soil. I've right. s- I, I found that there's lots of different types of millet, uh, yep, lots of different is. types of wheat, oat.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And I was just trying to look through the other things. Yeah, pretty much it peas as well. I seem yes, to think there was yeah. some peas grown.
1: Yeah, and then um so the wheat in particular, they don't seem to have been processing it in the town uh, no. at the time that I'm looking at guns around the first century. It seems to have stopped because they've got so advanced, the Roman Empire, that you're able to do that outside of the town, bring in the grain yeah. and people use it from yeah. there. Um, but yeah, in terms of like vegetables. Which we've not mentioned. Um,
0: No, no. Go for it. Go for vegetables.
1: Pompeian cabbages or Campanian cabbages. They are (laughs) really or Herculanean cabbages. (laughs) They talk about these. They were they love their cabbages. Yeah. Um, And then they've you know you've got carrots and radish. Um, You've mentioned all the all the other ones, but turnip, onion, garlic. Yeah. Garlic in particular. There there was a dish called maratum which you'd make your bread and you'd make this little uh, garlic and herb sort of uh, spread to put on top. Mm. And that was what the farmers ate because there is a whole poem dedicated to this subject, a farmer getting (laughs) up in the morning, making his bread, making his garlic spread and eating it and getting the garlic from his garden. So, um, yeah, they say that it was Virgil, but it was someone that was copying Virgil, I think. Um, You wait,
0: that will be on Instagram soon. That will be a story on Instagram.
1: (laughs) I know they love that and and again that's what you said earlier the rustic ideal you mm. had this and you could go into your garden you could get the garlic I mean we're doing it all now um yeah and then that's yeah fair the, and the citrus so we've gone over that one. Oh, cherry <laughs> I didn't did I mention oh cherry? yeah yeah cherries yeah yeah cherry was another one uh that was famous around Pompeii they produced very good cherries apparently
0: wow so, and again yeah. cherry I wouldn't have thought for some reason no, I don't no. know why but there's no I can't find any kind of logic to why I think some fruit or veg, obviously, yeah. and others, nah. <laughs> and for some reason, cherry, strawberry, just didn't think, didn't think that they would be there. It's funny, but...
1: isn't it? It is funny. Yeah, uh, there's so many different ones, but yeah, like we said, the, most of them are on frescoes, and you've even got the little pruning marks where they've yeah. made sure that they're keeping it back, and 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 also, like you said, there's so many different varieties that wouldn't uh, wouldn't grow alongside one another or bloom hmm. rather at the same time but you do get in frescoes that ideal image of the garden all blooming at one time. Perhaps a commentary on their power and their ability and their technology to to look after their gardens to such a, yes. such a careful degree. Um, but yes, these all of these things were growing. You'd have whole gardens dedicated to an olive. There's a little garden that seems to have been created out of the space of a, of a house, a domus, after the earthquake. They seem to have demolished it made a garden and it seems to have been an olive nursery so that's that's lovely they did have plant nurseries too so of course we never really it only occurred to me a couple of years ago that they must have been going somewhere to buy these plants yeah to put them in their gardens so a little version of you know home base or bq in pompeii incredible Uh,
0: i i read a a thing i again i'd like to find the Mm. the source for this i haven't got the source for it but i read reference to cucumbers or i think it was cucumbers or it was something like a cucumber and tiberius loved them but (laughs) the problem they had with growing them was obviously they don't like the cold too much so he had them in little carts on wheels and they'd be wheeled out during the day sit in the sun nice and then at night wheeled back in Yep. And just to be kept the front, if anyone knows of that, please uh, send me a tweet and just, you know, this is where <laughs> it was noted. I imagine it's probably a sounds like something Suetonius would have said possibly. Yeah, tuss, it, yeah, mm. yeah. I, <laughs> yeah.
1: I, I, I can't quite think at the moment, but I do know that there's another one. Marshall mentions a cucumber and he's oh. moaning because he's got too small a garden to grow a cucumber <laughs> <for> lengthwise in <laughs> <laughs> so he's really not happy because he, he was he wants to show off his rustic garden you see and this yeah. is if you know if you were important you'd have your friends round they'd see the rustic garden then you'd eat some stuff from the rustic yeah. garden and he was fed up because he just had what he was making out was you know a window box <laughs> right oh, okay. so he couldn't he couldn't grow a cucumber lengthwise in it because it was too small so he wasn't happy about that <laughs> I doubt. Yeah, and, that and I'm, I'm just
0: gonna go if you if you've not read Marshall, uh, some of his stuff is eye watering. Hey, it's um, it's quite rude. So the irony, I think, could be that Marshall has a cucumber, but and is one of the more ruder um, <laughs> writers, and yet doesn't make any kind of joke on it. That's no. he just missed that one. Perhaps he just thought, you know what, it's just too clean for me. I I don't want to do. I don't <laughs> want to do that. Yeah. Maybe. um I, it's lazy humor i'm above this i will just write about something really bad i saw in a bath uh yeah <laughs> okay well uh, we so we've got quite a few quite a lot of veg being grown there i, mm-hmm. I just want to throw in flowers into the mix yes. because we don't tend to think of flowers as, as being part of this and i've read that there were quite a lot of flower gardens as well or there were flower gardens
1: yes so the garden of hercules mm. um is a such a lovely idea uh, example so you've got um Again, the furrows and little raised plant beds where they were uh, cultivating flowers and mm. flowers were really, really important to the Romans, not yeah. only for garlands and religious ceremonies. So this garden, just to give you an idea, was A matter of yards away from the gate that went out to the necropolis, which is where you would bury your dead. It had to be outside of the city. So you would walk into the city and there was this flower garden, pretty much. I imagine that they were selling gardens outside of it, maybe. Um, But they were also producing perfume in this garden. And perfume was really important to the Romans as well. And much to the distaste of some ancient writers, you know, saying it's (laughs) it's ridiculous. Naturally, naturally. (laughs) Always, always the old times were better.
0: (laughs) Yeah, always, yeah. yeah. Rustic.
1: Oh, God. Um, But... I I read somewhere that you use olive, you could use olive oil in perfume making. So this garden um, would have been using that and it was just covered in flowers. As far as Mm. we know, there were loads and loads of cavities that Jashemski found. She also found lots of little glass bottles for the perfume. So it's all being made on site. And this is one of the ones that had a really complex irrigation system.
0: Excellent. I'm glad you. I'm glad you mentioned irrigation because that is a question that I want to come to. So, yeah, Yeah. please talk about the the irrigation here.
1: So, um, this is the one that I was mentioning earlier, actually, with the little hole in the wall, and Mm. it's incredible. This channel goes up and down the garden, and um, they use the slope, the natural slope of what I was saying Mm. earlier, where it goes down to the south. So it would have flowed around the garden and then whatever was left over would have collected. They would have collected as well in a, in a little jar. Um, so they were really particular. And like I was saying, they were having to go to the fountain for this, the local fountain. It yeah. wasn't something you could just get on tap like you no. would now. So imagine how hard it is to raise flowers
2: yeah. today. Yeah.
1: In Britain, even in when it yeah. gets hot. Comparing that to Italy, the Italy heat, it's just, I don't know how they did it but it was extremely rigid irrigation systems and yet they would have little what we call sombreros around plants which would store (laughs) the water (laughs) Yes, so they do it today again if you go to italy today they still make these little sombreros around the around the plants to keep the water in yeah it's a it's a tried and tested technique and they're still doing it now um so, yeah, they would have those. And also, it's worth mentioning that from the volcano, which had erupted many times before Pompeii even existed, um, pumice, there's pumice in the soil, which stores, naturally stores water. Oh, of course. Yeah. 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 So that was, I don't I think they would have known this because one of no. the writers says, oh, there's pumice, so it's fertile and blah, blah, blah. Um, But yes. So there's lots of different methods, and they would go with their jar, their amphora, which you would mm. reuse from when you had wine in it or what have you, and they'd go and collect the water, and they'd come back and they'd they do all of that. So yeah, it was. Really it's,
0: was it know. the 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 house of Hercules? They had the mm-hmm. large dolia, just to catch rainwater. was it there? Yeah, think, yeah,
1: so, yeah, yeah, it's A lot of those, and there's a lot of cisterns as so well. So you have
0: like water, well, like you'd have like water butts today. I think it's yeah. worth considering just how good Roman roofs were at collating and and, Mm. uh, managing water. It's something that we don't always think about. If you ever want to read a really good piece on it, there's Alex Scobie who wrote about slums and uh, all sorts, and he talks about the water. Uh, If you weren't aware of this, the the cloaca maxima, the, the great, sewer at rome wasn't really a sewer as we would think of it it wasn't really plumbed into the systems it wasn't a case of flushing toilets or anything like that it was largely used i mean it, the, the origins of it i go into in one of my podcasts and that was about a, it was a basically a drainage channel because of the the propensity of that area of rome to flood continually and so they needed it's kind of like a divergent channel to take the water away but in the later times it becomes a great way of getting what is effectively wastewater or street level okay. off the street and so, if it rains really, really hard, it just flushes the sewer out, and it goes out that way. Likewise, when you've got all of these roofs in in Pompeii, they would have acted in a similar way. They wouldn't be wasting rainwater. Rainwater would have been guided from them into channels, like you say, into pots, uh, into the really quite structured irrigation systems they had they were very 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 clever we think of rome as being managing water through big things through the big uh, aqueducts and stuff like that but it could be done at a very very small level and you can imagine as you said how difficult it was to keep flowers watered in pompeii this is one way you made sure that if there was a brief shower you got as much of that rain stored as you could
1: yeah, and you're completely right, and especially after the earthquake when they were cut off. Potentially, we don't know yeah, for sure, but it, it's it's likely, isn't it? You've got the aqua Augustus nearby, which is part of the aqueduct. Hmm. Um, Augustus gave Pompeii that pretty much. Um, but then if that went, then then what do you have? But there are yeah. ev- there is evidence of wells from the original properties potentially that were before you know early days of pompeii and they they seem to have been relying again on that so there seems to be a like uh, they start using wells again um so they have all these techniques and i mean cisterns are a really good example of where you can find young plants because they needed so vines after a while you don't need to water them so much if anything you you thirst them out and you get better grapes but um trees the same after a couple of years you don't really need to water them too much so it's always a good indication when you find a system that there are young plants nearby or flowers.
0: okay so that that was an indicator of the kind of horticulture that was going on nearby See, yeah. again small details like this small can tell details. us so much when they were using uh, when they were growing and doing what they needed to do what were the tools that they were using what sort of things were they using that we probably use today
1: Oh, yeah. So it was, all, it was all very similar. So they had spades and yeah. uh, hoes and uh, oh, my goodness, shears. Actually, you know what? Anything that we do use today. They were all complete. Really? Same. Okay. Yes, they really, really were forks, everything. They haven't changed. They were mm. particular on, there were a lot of pruning forks. Yeah. And oddly, we find fish hooks in gardens quite
0: a bit. Oh, I've got something to do uh, with pruning. I've got something on that. I've got something on that. When I say I've got something, I don't know. I've got a possible, very tenuous link to this. I I was looking at some of the pest controls, pest control methods they had. And Cato, for example, um, mentions uh, use of a I think that's part of olive juice. And he Mm -hmm. says if you use that on vines, you can protect against caterpillars. But one of the things that Pliny suggests, to get rid of ants or to make sure ants aren't hanging around in your garden too much, you'd hang a fish in a tree.
1: Really, yep. I haven't ever
0: so, seen that one. The, he's got. I'll oh, give you some of these. Right, this sure. the, the first first one up. Protect grapes. If you rub a pruning knife on a beaver skin every time it was sharpened, for extra protection, you'd also use bear blood on it, and that protected grapes.
1: As you
0: do, hanging. Yeah, exactly. As you do, you can pretty much do as you do to all of these, <laughs> and it becomes increasingly yeah, weird. Can. Hang a fish in a tree, as we see, that apparently protects against ants. Touch a tree with the gall of a green lizard decoction of wormwood or house leek was used on turnips to protect them the skull of a beast of burden put on a stake in the garden and also hanging up crayfish protected against caterpillars i don't
1: know where they get all
0: this from (laughs) i don't know sometimes the, the thing i always find interesting particularly with ancient rome ancient greece as well Sometimes they're absolutely on the money. They just don't know why they don't know why the science works behind it, but there's a sign to it's, I suppose you'd call it old wives tales. or What we used to say is old wives tales is that there's something that works. You can't go into the science of it because you don't, you're not aware of the science. However, it just works. And then later on people go, Oh, actually that does check out some of these. I'm pretty sure probably aren't. I don't know about the decoction of wormwood or house leak. I don't know whether that had any viable things, um, Apparently, Skull of a Beast of Burden, someone says they still, in some gardens, they still have stakes with cups in them or something to attract ants. Or, uh-huh. uh, again, I don't know if that's that's something. Okay. Um, well... Possibly. I, uh, perhaps if they saw ants, yeah. if you put a, a skull, perhaps it wasn't an actual skull, perhaps it was the head with a bit of, bit of bits on it. They And then they saw there were loads of ants on that. They would then assume that those ants aren't anywhere else. Mm.
1: Perhaps yeah, that's well. where they... Yeah, maybe. I mean, yeah, I'm trying to think of whether we've we've not found skulls. Particular. There are occasionally like remnants of skulls, but I can't mm. think of any maybe or fruit. Maybe they were using fruit or something. I don't know. But yeah,
0: that was Pliny talking generally. So it, it might have been some, you know, it, again, some of these varies, things,
1: doesn't it? Yeah.
0: Some of these things, to be fair, I think he even goes and says that's rubbish.
1: <laughs> well, it, yeah. Yeah.
0: He's not always, everything Pliny writes down isn't always. He, he likes writing things yeah. down and then saying at the end of them, but that's rubbish. So in yeah. which case, it's a bit like Herodotus when he writes, oh, and there were giant, massive Jaffa cakes and they rolled all over the Egyptians and that's how we got Crete. And then at the end of it, it'll go, I don't believe any of that. That's all rubbish. Yeah, and you think, yeah, but you still true. put it in there. But you, <laughs> you, why? Because you want, you know, I don't blame him for that. So, <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, I suppose it's it's just whatever works for you. So that was, Um, I just wanted to throw that in there with Pess. And thanks for the, thanks for giving me the segue. That was a, that was a really good one. Yeah, I was going to say, how can I get that in there? I don't.
1: Well, actually, now you say it. So I went of course when I went to Pompeii many times mm. for my research and still am hopefully this year <laughs> um, fingers crossed. yeah fingers crossed um I went to a local uh, olive yard um to speak to some of the locals and then they took me down to their little lemon grove and there were all sorts of things going on they said well we only graft under the moonlight I said why do you do that and they said because it, it draws the sap out it's, and it's much easier to see and ah. This is actually referenced in one of the ancient writers. They say okay. do it under the moonlight. And originally I thought, what a what a random thing to say. You know, there's no there's no talking about this uh, sap as far as I know. So I thought that's just, this. you know, this, like you were saying, is it rubbish? But no, they do it now. And there's a very good reason for it.
0: I'm always conscious that someone, I generally don't like poo-pooing what people do because if they're doing it they're happy, hey, you know, why don't you go out <laughs> at moonlight and draw some sap go for it oh, yeah. have a great time but at the same time someone will come along and then just go well actually yeah. and then they just roll right. over you with a bunch of science and then you're like you left yeah and so, then you're like so well, of course it
1: makes so much sense now exactly
0: but... exactly and it, it, what's interesting there is you've got a kind of cultural memory going down it, within it's the region that it. obviously has changed hugely for those for those of you who aren't fully aware about Pompeii Pompeii is invariably seen as Roman but for pretty much all of its entirety, it wasn't Roman. It was, it was an association of different people, like Oscans, possibly Etruscans. There's talk of Phoenicians. There's lots of different tribes and societies and peoples who yeah. who lived and acted in Pompeii. And it's only in the sort of, I think it's under Sulla when it gets really brought into the Roman Empire proper. But mm-hmm. it wasn't really. Roman in, in many in many ways it was Roman because of course what they do is they, they have baths there they have a lot of the sort of Roman cultural furniture that you expect to have in other ways they're not so sometimes you might think well perhaps in that part of southern Italy which was largely informed through Greek influence some of these things were just what people did and like you said they didn't start Pompeii didn't start when they had an aqueduct they'd been accessing water and tapping water for centuries before yeah. Rome decided to give them or provide or build an aqueduct.
2: Mm -hmm. so there's
0: lots of these skills and technologies which i presume would have been learned and kept and having something that's referred to as you say in a text and 2000 or so years later people are still doing it absolutely proves that there could have been things that people were doing in the fifth century bce uh, when you had athens and sparta you also had pompeii and people doing things in a particular way they were still doing hundreds of years later to do with how you grow and how you cultivate food
1: exactly fascinating
0: isn't it <laughs> it is it is it's really interesting
1: forever <laughs>
0: I don't know how I'm going to edit down this episode because there's, there's so much there I think this might be one you just have to sit down with and just just enjoy just sit, sit in the garden or sit on the balcony and listen to it right. we've looked at a lot of the aspects I think we've covered most of the things we wanted to cover mm. is there anything that you want to say anything that we've missed or you would like to go over again or introduce
1: yeah so actually the thing that sticks out for me is I've been looking at commercial gardens and the triclinia, the couches, within them. And there are a lot of these, and I've been trying to work out why. And I think, well, we were talking about little apartments earlier, the the poorest of the poor, and some of these actually lead down into these gardens. So this was either the gardener or the owner, unlikely to be the owner when you've got a big garden yeah he's probably in one of the bigger houses um but yes any one of those or just renters that might have had access to this garden they might have been able to use it garden in it we we don't know so it's it's really interesting and looking into ownership as well of these gardens is interesting so the pompeians would have owned whole insulae i mean cicero talks of that in in a nearby town and says he makes loads of money from it like yeah you know millions and mm. from his insula um so yeah so they seem to have been especially after the earthquake building them down because actually they don't want to rebuild because they might keep having earthquakes yeah and they did keep having them you know there were they were all there were tremors all the time and this was a lead up to the eruption we know that now mm. they didn't um but yes they were sort of renting the, they seem to have been renting gardens out and within them there are triclinia. i think that the possibility is that people were renting these triclinia to have dinner parties in. And okay. I don't think that would be unusual for them. No. I, I think that would be quite normal if you didn't have one yourself or you just wanted a different. I mean, we do it now. We don't always yeah. eat at home. We don't no, no, have absolutely not. at home. We go out and we have dinner for our birthdays or whatever. I feel like this would have been happening there. It's not ever really been gone into. There's one scholar references the idea of renting out triclinia. And that's it. Nobody has ever spoken about it again. So, so this is a
0: really new. This is yeah. a, a new perspective that you've you've been working on. That that's absolutely yeah. fascinating. I never thought of that, but again, why not?
1: Why not? Exactly. And they were very. My research has also shown they were very very visible. If you're walking down the street and you look left into a garden, for example, you can see the triclinium there. It's almost like an advertisement, I think. Mm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it, and they have serving tables. They're, some of them are near kitchens, indoors, mm. uh, near processing areas. Some of them have treading floors for wine. Um, and yeah. then in the triclinia or um, shrines in particular are very, very common in in all sorts of gardens to protect them. And Priapus was one of those. He was yeah. hooked at as a scarecrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he so, was quite scary. Yeah, he was. Um so yeah, I think this, this commercial dining area is really, really quite an, a fascinating area. And actually mm. there's a Calpona um which is a well, a tavern, I suppose, a pub. Mm. Um and you could go there. So there's one called Calpona of Usenus and he has an advertisement outside like I wish you good luck and from me, from Eucinus. and he's got Amphora in his in his shop that says deliver to uh Eusinus by the amphitheater in Pompeii so he was having stuff delivered to him and someone had written this on there to make sure it got to him This specific wine and he had vines in his garden and Jashemsky thinks because of the size of it and the fact that it had a door leading straight onto the street outside and onto the shop next door that it was probably used to serve people in the garden yeah so with temporary fixtures you know wooden tables and the like and we do have frescoes of those from inns around Pompeii so yeah they were being used for very very different things and I think like you were saying earlier they were really maximizing the use of these spaces they weren't Mm. just growing in them always they were inviting their friends into them or they were renting out potentially renting out the triclinia or they were serving people among the vines and the trees in a nice shaded environment by the amphitheater so I
0: wonder if if it was we spoke earlier about the patron client relationship that was mm-hmm. sort of a standard thing i wonder perhaps as well that could have been part of it in that if you were a client then you could access yeah. if your patron had a garden exactly. that might be part of being you know that relationship could be well this is one of the benefits you get if you're one of my clients is that okay. occasionally <laughs> i'll let you um, come and use the tricholinium in my garden you can use oh, that for possible. a Uh, It's it's that kind of thing. It does open up a load of possibilities.
1: It does. It does. So interesting. And yeah, Mm. they're not one. They're never one dimensional spaces. These gardens, there's so much, so many crossovers, like with the house of the feed we said about earlier, there are a lot of crossovers, but more often the commercial side does seem to have entertaining areas of some sort. I mean, there's the shop house garden again, has a little apartment above And it's not a massive space, but it was created by demolishing a house on it that had been potentially destroyed in the earthquake again. They'd added a system, they put in some vines. And at the back of the garden, there's this little area with lots of paraphernalia from everyday life, including toys of children.
0: Okay, so
1: kid's area. Oh, yeah, like hairpins. They had a little um, stove to cook over. They were dedicating things there. They had pots and pans and things to eat out of. They had all sorts, and they were clearly using this as an you know, an extra living room, <laughs> almost right. like you'd have a barbecue, and you'd yeah, all go yeah. and sit around. And all these little items, yeah, the hairpin was found on the path, I think.
0: I'm going to need to get you on another episode, mm-hmm. I think, just to talk about this, because I, I wasn't aware of this, and I'm finding it very, <laughs> very interesting. Yeah. Because it, it's just, I'm <laughs> trying to now think, I'm going to spend the next few days thinking on this <laughs> in terms of what are the what could they have done local dignitaries come in yeah wouldn't it be great if mm. a local dignitary comes along and you say well you know guess what I'm a you can you can eat my triclinium or my you know patrons yeah. all of these kind of things is it opens up an entire different sort of social dimension to everything so yeah mm-hmm. no I'd, I'd really be very interested by when you are yeah. able to bring more
1: absolutely oh and there's probably one more thing to mention and this is okay. one of my favorites is the uh broken amphorae uh, oh yeah the terracottas in the top of the walls and they yes. were trying to keep what shashemski says the kids out from stealing the fruit which i think is right. brilliant so they literally were trying to, and they again they still do this today so i went past an orchard near my house that had glass on the top of the wall i don't know if it's to stop birds or what have you but it's still done and um dogs in particular were very very important in gardens jocenski yeah. said she'd never found an a garden that didn't have some evidence of a dog in it of bones dog bones
0: do you think the dogs had lived in the gardens over had some sort of kennel dog house thing
1: yes they had dog houses so they broke up and for A or Dolia and they they make little kennels for them. <laughs> so the and for A kennels. Yeah, and there was one with boat, a bone nearby. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. It's like it's like from Dennis the Menace. Yeah, it's yeah, it's lovely. And there was one garden that had a big dog and a little dog, a little lap dog. So they were they oh, were looking yeah. after the garden.
0: <laughs> yeah, the the lap dogs were a real kind of prestige thing. They were kind of Pomerian type.
1: Um, yes, species yes, they were. that they
0: used to have they feature on exactly. they feature I think on Greek vases the Greeks really mm-hmm. really enjoyed them as well though it was like one of those things that people have and again they have them today I saw that there was a tortoise shell found in mm. one of the gardens
1: were, so I yep. don't know if
0: that was a pet tortoise I presume it must have been
1: oh yeah I think so I think so I don't think they would have eaten it, but they did have a lot no. of bones. <laughs> they did have a lot yeah. of bones. But, you know, like the cattle market we were talking about earlier, they thought that that was a cattle market because there were so many animal bones found there. Okay. And they had like goat and pig and cow and sheep. It's hard to tell which one. And it, and was it wasn't.
0: And so they've revised that, have they? They've worked out that it wasn't a cow market and yeah, that it was actually a vineyard. Or
1: Exactly. Yes, yeah, yeah, so that's the one okay. that may have had 4,000 vines in it.
0: Wow, all that wine. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I oh, know they have fully excavated it now and it is around that it is around that amount with the trees that you mentioned the 58 trees and 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 to be honest like nobody again nobody's looked into this but whether they kept chickens and all sorts in their gardens mm. again likely yeah. I, I don't think you'd want to keep a goat in your garden
0: <laughs> I no. think it would
1: run riot but maybe pigs that's that still goes possibly today, yeah and not so yeah. much of a um a burden that we think they would I mean Pompeii was a smelly place anyway I don't mm. think pigs would smell particularly badly next to a somewhere where you are washing your clothes with with urine yeah. in a Philonica. so I know. yeah
0: I've uh, read again that they used just to go on the smells thing why not mm. they used human excrement as the dung and fertilizer like in that. Rome do we know if they did that in Pompeii
1: Um, So I don't know about human, but they did bring in fertilizer. So we've got evidence of soil that doesn't come from Pompeii. They're bringing it in and there are piles of it in some gardens where they're ready to use it. Um, oh okay um, so it was
0: they had they had almost uh what's his name what do you call it in the corner of the garden um refuse. refuse uh, compost, yeah. <laughs> compost that's it yeah So they had yes. their own ready-made compost okay. oh
1: yeah yeah they would have been doing all that and um little pits where they'd be burning stuff and uh yeah so they were bringing in all sorts it's quite quite interesting to see where they're coming from hmm. where they're bringing all of these things from and i imagine that's something to do with which plants were brought in as well you can you could uh with the soil you could work that
0: out but yeah, yeah, yeah. I imagine that. Yeah, bearing in mind what you said about the beans, mm-hmm. um and I think that's it. I, th- I just want to say thanks again for coming on and and talking as, as well as you have done uh, in depth about so many different things. Oh,
1: you're more than welcome. I would do it any time. <laughs> always happy to talk about gardens. <laughs>
0: well, yeah. Again, perhaps we can do something more when we've when you've looked into that particular area that you, you spoke about earlier. If you've listened to this and you've kept all the way through. Really appreciate that. I hope you found it as interesting to listen to as it has been to record and talk to Jessica about. And Jessica, is there any final thoughts? Anything you want to say more? No,
1: just going to go out in the sun now. into the Yeah, there
0: we go. Yeah, I'm going to go for a walk now. I'm going to go and get coffee and have a walk (laughs) and uh, do some thinking. I'm going to see if I can see any sort of crayfish hanging around the place in any of the gardens in Brighton. Probably not. (laughs) Hopefully
1: not.
0: (laughs) Although it could be a thing. You never know, Brighton. Until next time, as ever, keep safe and take care thanks very much bye
2: Bye.